This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Well, so far in the course, we have gone through a number of uh, sections. First of all, we looked a little bit at early church worship to get a, a feel for how the church itself was functioning. We looked at the apostolic fathers, and then we all got all excited, I think, a little bit about the persecutions of the Christians. And then we saw some of the perversions that followed, uh, particularly the Gnostic uh, perversions of Christianity. And what we find in all of this, I hope you see a little bit of a pattern. And if you haven't, let me spell it out. Persecution and heretical ideas force Christians to apologize. Apologize not in the sense of saying you're sorry, but apologize in the sense of defending what it is you believe. And in the process of defending what you believe, some interesting things happen. And one of the things that happens is theology starts to happen. People start thinking theologically. And so what we see, generally speaking then, is that, and tonight we're going to see the, or some of the earliest stages of people beginning to think in terms of a body of knowledge, a body of doctrine. And so, theology was forged in the fires of persecution and heresy. Let's look first at the Greek apologists. And you are aware, aren't you? When I say apology, I'm talking about uh, those writings which were intended to articulate to defend the faith against various kinds of accusations. We are now in intro. It was, as I've said, in defending the Christ Christianity, the Christian truth against assaults from Judaism, Gnosticism, Montanus, Marcion, that the church had to clarify what it believed. And so we move from the apostolic fathers and their more practical kinds of concerns, uh, the, 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 the running of the everyday church, to the more reflective kinds of things, uh, of thoughts, that are characteristic of the Greek apologists. The apologists had both a positive and a negative aim. Negatively, they sought to refute those charges of atheism, cannibalism, and incest. The big three. But positively, 
the apologists, and I'm thinking now particularly the Greek apologists, tried to develop a more constructive approach. Uh, they began to make a rational appeal to pagan leaders. They wanted to try to persuade the emperor and the powers that be that they had a right to exist. And you need to, if you understand us, then perhaps you might even join us. And so they made, in their apologies, there is an appeal for tolerance. And it's a very rational approach to the question. Now, one of the things that needs to be understood about the Greek apologists is at this stage, they are more philosophers and less theologians, more philosophical and less theological. You see, the Greek philosophers, the Greek apologists, for the most part, they had been well-trained in Greek philosophy before their acceptance of Christianity. And in fact, the Greek apologists looked upon Greek philosophy as a means to lead men to Christ. A reliance on Greek philosophy as a means to lead men and women to Christ. And as I've already mentioned, in addition to that, there are attempts to demonstrate and almost, and almost always on a very rationalistic sort of basis that Christianity is the true philosophy. Now, let me mention a number of the more prominent Greek apologists. And just in some cases, we only have very fragmentary knowledge of their writings and indeed about their lives. But let me mention some of the most important. I'll be relatively brief here uh, and we'll concentrate on Justin Martyr because he is sort of the epitome of the Greek apologists. But first, I want to mention Aristides. A-R-I-S-T-I-D-E-S. Aristides was one of the very earliest of the Greek apologists. He was active still uh, in 140 A.D., so he's relatively the first half of the second century that he is active. And what did he do before he became a Christian? He was a philosopher from Athens. That reminds me, when I was dating my wife, this is a little autobiographical tidbit, by the way. Um, they say, well, this will not be on the final. <laughs> well, I was a student in graduate school in philosophy. And my poor wife couldn't imagine how someone who claimed to be a Christian wanted to study philosophy. And so I find myself, when I read about these guys who are Christian philosophers, sort of having a warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, because uh, my wife... Uh, always wondered how someone could be a Christian and a philosopher. But it's, it's possible, I assure you. Are you saying? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. But I'm not a philosopher either. <laughs> At any rate, Aristides was 
a Greek philosopher before he became a Christian. And he wrote what we all have now is the earliest preserved apology. Eusebius refers to him. And it's an apology to the Roman Emperor Hadrian, written in about 125 A.D. So this is really quite early. Now what's interesting about this particular apology, we only knew that it existed, didn't know anything about what it said. We didn't have any copies of it until 1878 when uh, a part of the apology was discovered. And it's rather clear that Christianity had invaded the domain of the philosophers in Athens. Now, from the, the small fragment that we have of this apology of Aristides, what we get is just what you probably expect at this stage, a very simple understanding of Christianity. God is the Creator, and Jesus is the Redeemer. There is some emphasis placed on the fact that he was born of a virgin. Uh, there's also some emphasis on the resurrection. What this tells us early on is that those issues, such as the virgin birth and the resurrection, have always been central to the Christian message. And Aristides mentions those. Now, we don't have a complete apology, so we just have bits and pieces. And those are just a quick snapshot into some of the ideas that he found important and characteristic of Christianity. And then Athenagoras, late 2nd century, another former philosopher of Athens who was active in the reign of Marcus Aurelius. We know of two works of his. The first is one that you've already read, and that is the plea on behalf of the Christians. And then another work on the resurrection. Again, that key idea. I'm reminded of some of the books that have been written recently in the last three or four years on Christ. And inevitably, they challenge that, some of the newer critical works. Uh, and it's, it's always interesting to me to be reminded that early on, the resurrection was central to the Christian message. Now, you recall the three charges of immorality acknowledged by Athenagoras. Uh, atheism, cannibalism, and incest. And you recall as well how he put a great deal of stress on the rationality, the coherence of Christianity, particularly in comparison to other uh, philosophies and other religion. There was also a very, a very strong stress on a very high morality uh, in the way you lived your life. And one of the most important things about Athenagoras for our purposes, are some of the early statements that he makes with regard to the Trinity. Now, he doesn't use the word Trinity, to be sure, but he talks about, a little bit, the relationship between the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for that matter. In a very broad kind of way, early on, Athenagoras talks about the one God... And yet, there is three. There are three, I should say. Now, he doesn't work out any of the details, but he does say this. Perhaps you'll remember. He speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he speaks of their unity in power and distinction in rank. So, there's this idea of unity 
and distinction of some sort. Uh, I think we see here in Athenagoras what we'll find that pervades this whole era in the second and early third century are what we call subordinationism. We'll see this again and again that while Jesus is thought of very highly, uh, thought to be in union with the Father in some sense, and yet most of these early Christian apologists have some measure of subordinationism. That is to say that Christ is of, of, in some sense, to use my phrase, is a little bit lower than God the Father. And again, Athenagoras in his book on the resurrection, defends this on a rational basis. Some scholars have judged that Athenagoras' plea is the best early defense of Christianity that was provided. A third important Greek apologist was Theophilus of Antioch. Again, late 2nd century. I can't provide specific dates because we don't know exactly uh, their dates. He was the bishop of Antioch, converted apparently because the scriptures fell into his hands. And he had written a number of books of which only one uh, is extant. And what's interesting, and one of the main reasons I mentioned Theophilus is because he's the first to use the term triad to describe the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is a very early uh, early thinking about the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. Very early thinking about the Trinity. There are other apologists that I will just name. Quadratus, Miletio, and Tatian all of whom uh, don't really contribute anything more than what I've already said. They, they fall pretty much in the same basic categories. Yes? See that? Triad. And again, that's significant because it, it's, it's an early stage in the church's thinking about the relationship of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So it's not, certainly, by, not, by, not by any stretch of the imagination, is it a doctrine of the Trinity? But it is first thoughts about those kinds of issues. Let's now look more carefully at Justin Martyr. His dates are approximately the turn of the century, 100 to 165. And we'll begin with a few preliminary remarks about, him, about Justin Martyr himself. He is generally considered the greatest of the Greek apologists, we don't know much about his life. Uh, vaguely, what we do know is that he seems to have been born in the area of present-day Syria. And like so many of the others, before he was a Christian, he was a philosopher, a wandering philosopher. And what's also interesting about him is that he goes through all of the major philosophies that were prevalent in his day, seeking the truth. Is this one right? He gets involved in it and finds out for one reason or another that's inadequate. 
first, Justin Martyr uh, was interested in Stoicism. But the teacher, he said, turns out to be an agnostic. And there's something in Justin Martyr that he's convinced there is a God. So, and, and he feels quite sure of this. So Stoicism left him cold. Well, then he found uh, an Aristotelian to be his teacher. But this particular teacher was more concerned with fees than he was with truth. And so Justin Martyr was very disappointed with his Aristotelian tutor. And then he became interested in Platonism. And he became a very enthusiastic Platonist. Now this will happen time and time again in the early church, the first five or six centuries, is that people come from Platonism to Christianity. It's astonishing. Uh, I recommend to students that in their spare time they read some of the dialogues of Plato. Uh, because what it'll do is it'll give you a little bit of insight into how people uh, could have moved, could have been attracted to Plato, and then moved from that to Christianity. There are some very interesting ideas in Plato. We find this happening with Augustine, Justin Martyr, and a number of others. At any rate, yes? What was it about the Aristotelian teacher? The Aristotelian teacher was a fellow who really wanted to cash, and he wasn't interested quite so much in truth. Uh, and Justin Martyr was uh, a little bit uh, ticked that this fellow wasn't quite so interested in eternal verities, but more in uh, cash. Yes? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I mean by Christian is that they identified themselves as followers of Christ. Uh, they, in, in some cases, they were willing to risk their lives to be identified as a Christian. Remember, this is a time that it's a very risky thing to say, I am a Christian. Now, I, I think it, it's, it's very difficult to define precisely the, the, the details of what they believed. Uh, they had some general ideas. They believed in God the Creator. And we're going to go along here and see how really strange some of the twisted ideas that these early folks had. Okay, But they did believe in Christ and redemption from sin through Christ and through Christ alone. Uh, they put a, a particular philosophical slant on all of that. They identify Christ as eternal reason sometimes, but they attach a personality to that and then some sort of body uh, on, on earth. So, so there are some complexities. And one of the problems that's always very, very difficult that I have found is to ask, ask yourself this question. How little must one believe in order to be a Christian? Now, that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, and I think that when we think about these early folks and, and to recognize that they didn't have all their ducks in a row, 
certainly not as, as we conceive of Orthodox Christianity. But again, we're in the very early stages. People are, are, are finding out what Christianity is, really. It's developing. It's, it's like an infant taking its first steps. And, and a few steps are kind of halting, and they stumble from time to time. But from what we can tell, these folk seem to be real Christians. The fact that they were willing to identify with Christians at the risk of their life suggests a very serious commitment. So, Justin Martyr. Now, one of the things that's very, very interesting about Justin Martyr is how he was converted. It's really a wonderful story. Here he is, a guy who has been searching for truth for, for some years now. And he's gone from philosophy to philosophy to philosophy. And now he's basically a Platonist. One day, he's at a, a seaside kind of town and he decides to take a walk at the beach. And there he met an old man. And he and this old man began to talk. And this old man began to tell him about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and how the Old Testament had predicted that there would be a Messiah. And that Messiah, said this old man, had come, and his name was Jesus. And Justin Martyr was completely bowled over by this old man and the story he talked about, the story he told. And Justin Martyr then and there, was converted. Listen to what he says. Immediately, a fire was kindled in my soul. And he began to say, and he concluded, the only safe and beneficial philosophy is Christianity. Uh, it doesn't appear that he reasoned through this as a good philosopher ought to have. Uh, something beyond rationality occurred here. Something supernatural, it would seem. And he was smitten of the Lord. Uh, and so the Platonist, Justin Martyr, became Justin Martyr the Christian. That's, that's what he's called, uh, called now. Uh, I'll get to that in, in a few minutes. After his conversion... He continued to wear the philosopher's cloak. And he continued to travel from place to place. Uh, and he began to proclaim, now, no longer the philosophy of Plato, but the philosophy of Christ, the true philosophy. In fact, he traveled to Rome and apparently debated Marcion, uh, representing the Christian side. There are a number of books that he wrote, and you read the main one, Actually, there are two main ones. The first apology. He also wrote a second apology. And then also his, his dialogue with Trypho, the Jew. Now, one of the things that's characteristic of Justin Martyr is that he still retains a very high appreciation for pagan philosophers. In fact and I think I mentioned this to you some weeks back, that he was convinced that Socrates was in fact a Christian. 
was saved. Let's look at the theology a little bit of Justin Martyr. Now, one of the things that that I want us to grapple with a little bit, uh, so far, one of the things I've told you is that it's been a very, a very simple understanding of Christianity. It's really wide of the mark on a whole range of issues, issues that we think are very, very important. For example, justification. Uh, you, you don't find really any kind of discussion of, of those kinds of things. And I want us to... to I, I think there are some at least partial explanations as to why their understanding of Christianity was so weak. It has to do with this. I think there are two things that are particularly important in why the theology of Justin Martyr and and those of the 2nd and 3rd century seem to be missing uh, on on a number of levels. And the first one is, is that the New Testament canon was not complete And so they had access only to some of the documents of the New Testament. And at least this is a partial explanation. They didn't have, um, they weren't able to then put put forth a a complete picture because the, the, the source material was fragmented as far as they were concerned at this point. There was no complete canon at this point. And the other thing that I think is, is very, very important, and it has to do, and it's very much related to this first point about the fact there was no New Testament canon, and it is this. You hardly find any references to the writings of Paul in the Greek apologists. There are a few hints here and there. But primarily, when it comes to New Testament texts, the ones that are quoted the most are from the Gospels. Okay? The point here is, is they're drawing their theology from the Gospels. And I want to argue that we don't really understand the Gospels except in light of the epistles that help explain the person and the work of Christ displayed in the Gospels. And so they seem to be operating here with only part of the picture, part of their basic, uh, of the New Testament canon for them. Paul is not primary. And I think that is one of the main reasons why the theology early on here is so inadequate at, at a number of points. Did you make... That's what well, we're going to talk about that as we go along. But just quickly, uh, the logos. I mean, what happened is the Greek philosophers who already tuned in to to the idea of reason, logos. Uh, they found this very fruitful. These guys who had a Greek ph- philosophical background, this whole idea of the logos very much appealed to them. And what you find is this becomes a vehicle for them to articulate uh, Christianity and in some cases uh, misunderstand the Logos of John. 
So what they do is they sort of reinterpret the, the Logos of John in light of the, the Logos of Greek philosophy. Uh, and it leads to some mistaken notions. Yeah. Well, part of it has to do, I think, a very practical consideration, and that is that everybody didn't have access to all of the New Testament. There was no uh, official book like we have. Uh, certainly, there was a lot of what people knew were based on some copies, obviously, uh, but also oral tradition. A lot of people learned about Christianity through what the local presbytery or the bishop taught in their sermons. So, uh, and very early on, the Gospels are accepted as authoritative. Uh, although Paul's was too, Paul's writings were too in certain sections of Christendom. So, I think it's just that practical matter of not having ready access to, to all of Paul's writings. The Gospels are, are really pretty prominent. I mean, that's, that's, that tends to be the real focus uh, uh, of the, the early apologists of the Gospels. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.